Good morning. Good morning. Glad you're here. Um, I almost never preach topical sermons, but I'm going to do that this morning, so I don't even know where in the Bible I should encourage you to turn, because I'm going to be all over the place. Let's go ahead and uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, what a beautiful song with incredible, beautiful words that it is through your Son, Jesus Christ, alone by which we are saved, redeemed, bought back, our sin atoned for. We are incredible debtors. As we talk this morning, uh, we ask that you would visit us, that we would know that it was good to be in your house, and Father, as we look at misunderstood texts, or in this case, maybe a misunderstood topic, we don't want to look at these that we might be arrogant or prideful that we have a little bit more knowledge, but we ask their very transformation. And Father, admittedly, this is uh, the driest and most theological of the 17 sermons, but Lord, allow there to be something in it for each of us. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, today, you and I are going to talk about whether all sins are always equal in the eyes of God. And I suspect, Jared, that uh, if we talk to 10 different people in the church or outside the church, we would probably get slightly different answers. What do you think? Well, you're, that's true. There are slightly different answers. And so I think, you know what? I've been doing some research. Oh, boy. I brought a diagram this morning. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Let's see. There it is. All right. I saw that on Facebook. You call that research? That's what I said, Jeff. I've done some research. All right. This is what happens. So um, I think if you ask people inside the church, Christians, there's probably going to be maybe a 6-4 split. Uh, 60% of people would probably say that different sins have maybe some different consequences, different severity in the eyes of God. But I think outside the church, we have more of a 7-3 split. 70% of people probably say that all sin is equal. What say Dr. Jared? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I didn't realize I was on round two of my ordination council this you failed morning. failed the first one. We're yeah, going to give so, you another well, shot. Well, to bring it up. Okay. Okay. Um, I would say it's probably both understandings. I, I, see the, I see the merit in both of them, but it's not quite a black and white issue. I think, I think there's a little more maybe, maybe nuance involved in, in those questions. Nuance. Nuance. That's You're an ordination right. word. It does depend on if we are asking the theological question, yep. are all sins equal in the eyes of God temporally, we'll get one answer, or are all sins equal in the eyes of God eternally, we'll get another answer. Jeff, there you go with those words again, okay. Um, Sermons are supposed to bring clarity to the church, and words like that, they just, you just go on this big ivory tower, and maybe I need to go back to seminary, because I thought it was just a yes or no question, but you know what? With words like that, and you taking those kinds of positions, I'm just going to say something, church. I hope you've had some coffee this morning, because this is going to be a snoozer. 
meet the new greeter at Walmart. <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, I'll just go pack my office now, Pastor Jeff. Well, several months ago, I was listening to a presentation by a Bible teacher, and it was a really good presentation of all that the Lord is doing in other parts of the world. And I thought it was going exceptionally well. He was talking about sharing the gospel in another part of the world with someone who had some theological constructs that were not correct. And so he was correcting them. The individual he was talking to, very far from God, but knew something of a church tradition, used words like venial sin and mortal sin. I don't know if you know what those are. A venial sin in a certain theological construct, not one that I hold, is a lesser sin. A lesser sin is one that when you live your life and you die and you have these venial lesser sins, you would go to purgatory where you would do penance, which is in some way to earn your way out of purgatory into heaven. That, of course, is very far from what the Word of God says. The Bible actually says that there's no way you and I can earn anything that will give us anywhere close to God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, that's what we cannot earn, for by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so none of us can boast. In fact, Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our good works are as filthy rags. No matter how good our good works are, when we come into the presence of a holy God, it's like filthy rags. And so there's no way that you and I can earn our way to heaven, even if all we're guilty of is lesser venial sins. What does the Bible say in Romans 10, 9 and 10? It says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now this presenter then went on to talk about mortal sins, because he was talking to an individual who knew something about venial sins, these lesser sins, and then something like mortal sins. Mortal sins in this theological construct, one I don't believe, are bigger sins like idolatry and adultery, not going to church, not caring for the poor. Those are all mortal sins. And in the terms of this theological construct, if you and I have committed a mortal sin, what actually happens is that even if we were saved, we are unsaved and we need someone to absolve us of the sin. And the absolver happens to be a clergy person. Man, I wish this were true. I wish I somehow had the power to absolve everyone's sins. I like 99% of you, so you are in the clear. But I don't have that kind of power. Only Jesus has the power to absolve, whether it be a venial sin or a mortal sin. 
So this presenter was talking about him sharing the gospel with this individual who had these theological constructs but was very far from the heart of God. And then he made this statement. I wish he hadn't. He said, all sin is the same in the eyes of God. That's true sometimes, not all times. If we're really nuanced with the Bible, all sin eternally equally damns. So eternally, all sin is equal in the eyes of God because one sin, any sin, you name the sin, it doesn't matter what the sin is. If you and I commit a sin, just one, we are damned. In that sense, all sin is equal in the eyes of God. Isn't that the point James makes? He makes this in James 2, verse 10. He says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of the entire law. One sin, any sin, you name the sin. If we have committed a sin, action, attitude, thought, motive, inactivity, outside the will of God, one sin, then we are separated from a holy God in need of a redeemer. In that sense, yes, all sin eternally is equal in the eyes of God. But temporally, That is not true. God uses stronger language for certain sins than he does for others, and he brings more painful repercussions for certain sins than for others. I'm not going to try and be edgy, so I'm going to tell you right up front that my illustration is not an attempt to be edgy. It's a real person. Actually, it's a mash between two individuals that are in my lives, neither of which are in Wisconsin. So you can't figure out who it is. But I want to talk about Rick. Rick is a real person. Actually, he is a mash between two people. They're real in my life. I went to elementary school, the last part of it with Rick. I went to middle school with Rick. I went to high school with Rick. I double dated with Rick. We went off to separate colleges and sometime during college or after college, Rick declared that his identity was gay. Rick now lives in Washington, D.C. and he is very motivated touring, getting other individuals to vote like he does. He has that type of job, that kind of career, and he supports LBGTQIA+. Rick and I have very different worldviews. Rick's worldview is shaped by his sexual identity and by his politics. I want my worldview to be shaped by scripture. And over time, I'm hopeful that my worldview is shaped more and more and more incrementally like scripture. So we have very different worldviews. And we've had the discussion I'm about to have with you. The discussion goes something like this. Rick would say that Christians are obsessed with morality. Now, he's actually told me he doesn't think I'm in that category, but he thinks most Christians are just utterly obsessed with morality, that that's all we think about. 
And he thinks that his morality, anything that feels good is okay. And my view of morality, God gives constraints. He would say are utterly opposed one to another. And because of that, we are in opposition one with another, even though Rick and I are friends. He would say that this puts us in opposition one to another. He would add this. Churches like Highland are discriminatory because we would not allow somebody who is in a gay marriage or pursuing gay intimacy to be in leadership. This is what I would say to Rick. Rick, you're all wrong. Well, you didn't expect that answer. Rick, you're, you're stating something that I wouldn't state. This is what I would state, Rick. Leadership is about individuals who are broken over sin. Leadership is about individuals who won't redefine sin as righteous. Leadership is about people who are empowered by God's spirit, broken over sin, and are incrementally taking steps away from sin and towards righteousness. Leadership is not about any certain sin. It's about a opposition to personal sin in one's life, a brokenness, and an asking God to change us. So, so Rick, you're right in one sense, but you're really wrong in another. I don't ever have those conversations that you just accused me of, Rick. The conversations we have for leadership is, is somebody broken over sin? Are they grieving over sin? Do they try and redefine sin as righteousness? And are they empowered by God's spirit and taking incremental steps towards righteousness? If so, they may be a candidate for leadership. If not, it doesn't really matter what the sin issues are. They're not a candidate for leadership. Finally, Rick might say, well, Christians like to define certain sins as big sins, and they ignore the sins they commit, and they call them little sins. And I say, Rick, I, I don't know. You may have interacted with Christians like that. And then he would go on to say, uh, God considers all sin the same. And I'd say, Rick, Rick, where in the Bible do you see that? And he'd smile and say, well, Jeff, you know I don't know anything about the Bible. And I'd say, yeah, I, I do know that. But can I tell you what I think the Bible says? And we can have this kind of dialogue. And I might go on and say, Rick, you don't think all sins are the same. So why would you think God does? And I can prove it to you, Rick. The author of Mein Kampf murdered six million Jews, homosexuals, and gypsies. And yesterday, I hit my thumb with a hammer and said something I shouldn't have said. Are those the same? Of course, he would answer. You would answer. We would all answer. Absolutely not. And you know that's the answer God gives us in Scripture as well. The Bible does list certain sins with stronger language than others. 
Let me start with 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. There's no other verse like this in Scripture. None. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The Bible would tell us that all sin leads us culpable to God, that all sin has collateral damage, that all sin needs to be reconciled. But uniquely, we have this statement that anyone who sins sexually sins against their own body. That may be true of other sins, but this is a unique statement in all of Scripture. And it's not homosexual, it's not heterosexual. It's those who are immoral, they have done something, they have tainted something in their body that is more difficult to get freedom from than other sins. And I can tell you as somebody who counsels, that's true. Certainly it's a top three, it might be number one in terms of my counseling individuals who talk about something that occurred 30 and 40 and 50 years ago that is still bringing grief into their life. And this would be that category. Listen to the strong language that Paul uses actually about homosexuality in Romans 1, 26 to 28. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in them the due penalty for their error. That's pretty strong language. It's abnormally strong language for the Bible. So the Bible doesn't use the same language for all types of sin. Give me five minutes. I think I can really make that point. But before I do so, I want to make three subpoints. First, I care about Rick. Rick did not cease to be my friend when he came out of the closet. He did not. He will not cease to be my friend regardless of the types of differences we hold. I won't change what I believe. I will be forthright in my love in sharing what I believe. I want Rick to come to Jesus. I want him to find freedom from sin, all sin, the same freedom I have found through Jesus Christ. I do, do not think it's a compromise of my faith in any way, shape, or form for me to care for this man. I would not have gone to his wedding because that would be tacit approval from my view. But short of that, he will be my friend. And I don't feel any tinge of guilt. In fact, that leads to my second point. Isn't that what the church is all about? The church is all about sinners like us finding a savior being rescued from our sin by a Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us and paid the penalty of our sin. This is where I think Rick and I would disagree. I think Rick would say, if Jesus loves me, 
he is going to leave me where I am. And I would say, because Jesus loves you, if you believe in him, he will take you, me, us, exactly where we are. But he will never leave us there. His spirit will come into our life, empower us, and incrementally, little by little, we will turn from our sin and towards righteousness. Look at the genealogy of Jesus. It might make you blush. I mean, we wouldn't have listed some of those people. But I think it's very purposeful that we have the genealogy of Jesus really twice. One of Mary and one of Joseph, I think. Because the Lord wants us to see the type of individuals just like us that have been rescued from sin. And third, I think it's very important that you and I understand the difference between temptation and pursuing, lusting, and acting on sin. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in all things or tempted in all things and yet is without sin. There is a profound difference between being tempted with sin and saying, nope, I'm going to rule that out of bounds by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to lust on that. I'm not going to act on that. And what happens? That's victory. That's victory. Sincere Christ followers, godly Christ followers are tempted in every single sin that's listed in all Scripture. The difference between Victory and non-victory is saying, oh, ooh, ooh, that's a temptation. Nope. Nope, not going to think about that. Holy Spirit, come. Empower me. Turn from me. Turn me from that sin. That's victory or the loss of pursuing it, acting on it, lusting. Godly people are tempted in every single sin. But they resist, empowered by God's Spirit. We need to know the difference between temptation, which is not sinful, and thinking, lusting, pursuing, which always is sinful. Back to the overall theme. Are all sins equal in the eyes of God? That's a hard case to make temporally here on earth. Let me read from Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. There are six things the Lord hates, Seven that are an abomination to him. I know you know this passage, so you already know what's in there. But I'm willing to bet that if we listed the seven things that were an abomination, we might have come up with three of these, but not the other four. Haughty eyes, a little pride. I beat some guys in golf this week. No big deal. A lying tongue. I might have just lied about my golf score. Hands that shed innocent blood. Now that makes my top three. A heart that devises wicked plans. Yep. Feet that run. I don't run after anything at my age. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Okay, those three make it. A false witness who breathes out lies and, and one who sows discord among the brethren. I kind of doubt that pride, lying twice, and discord among Christians makes our top seven that are an abomination to God. 
And yet, that's what the text tells us. Very strong language. You know another sin that God is very intolerant about? Leading children incorrectly. God is very intolerant if we lead children towards sin. Let me read Luke 17 too. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should lead or cause one of these little ones to sin. God is utterly intolerant. Obviously, he is using language with hyperbole, but he's saying we are always role models for children, always. And if we're leading them towards sin, it's better that we throw a millstone around our neck and be thrown into the sea than do that. You were think about uh, how God interacts with religious leaders who teach false. Matthew 23, he calls the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers filled with decrepit bones. They look good on the outside. They're decaying on the inside. He calls them brood of vipers, a pack of poisonous snakes. That's what he calls the Pharisees. James 3.1, let not many of you presume to be Teachers, my brethren, for do you not know that we will surely incur a stricter judgment? Are all sins equal in the eyes of God? He tells us that if we lead children astray, that is very significant in his eyes. If we are teaching and we're teaching false things, surely we will incur a stricter judgment. Listen to the words of Jesus in John. This is a remarkable statement. John 19, 11. Jesus answered him. Uh, he's talking to Governor Pilate. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you, Judas, has the greater sin. Are all sins even? Jesus said, no, there's a greater sin. Now, I want us to compare Governor Pilate with Judas, what did they do? They both handed Jesus over to die. Judas gave Jesus a kiss, got 30 pieces of silver, and handed him to Pilate. And what did Pilate do? He had him whipped and beaten, and then handed him over to the mob that he would be crucified. Those sound like identical sins. Why is one greater than the other? Because one had more light than the other. Judas lived with Jesus for three and a half years, heard the miracles, excuse me, heard the teaching, saw the miracles, and therefore he is more culpable. The more that we understand scripture, the more culpable we are before the Lord. That's what the Bible says. Let me read from Luke 12, verse 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much more will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The more you and I understand scripture, the more in love we are with Jesus. But the more culpable we are before Jesus. There's a lot of light in our life. And when there's a lot of light in our life, then we are more culpable before him. Let me close with just a few thoughts. 
First, all of us share the same twisted root. This is why there can't be arrogance among us. All of us share the same twisted root. We inherited the root from Adam. Let me read Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Because Eve gave Adam the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and because Adam ate it, you are guilty. It doesn't sound fair. We're guilty because of Adam. This is why. God knows full well that if you had been there, you would have held out for like 60 days. If I had been there, I would have held out for like five days. And the difference between five and 60 is not enough. So we're all guilty. We all have the same twisted root. But this leads to the second point. Some of our twisted roots go deeper than others. That's why Galatians 6, 7 says this. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. For whatever a man soweth, that shall he reapeth. There are temporal repercussions for our sin. Sometimes there are eternal repercussions. There's eternal repercussions in terms of If we have not been redeemed by faith in the blood of the Lamb, we go to hell. And clearly in Scripture, hell is eternal for all who are not redeemed, but it's actually more painful for some than others for eternity. And if we have been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb, we have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, and we really live for Him, we'll have extra rewards. Heaven will be wonderful for all who believe in Christ, but some will come in with extra rewards than others because of what they've done in the body for the glory of God. Whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reapeth. Third, and this will surprise some of us, ignorance never dismisses sin, but it does lower culpability. We might not expect that, but it's true. It's kind of like uh, the difference between negligent homicide and first-degree homicide. One is premeditated, and it comes with generally a higher level of culpability in the law. Well, that's actually an Old Testament principle. In the Old Testament, in Numbers 35, we see that if someone accidentally kills somebody else, and they could be put to death, and they run to a refuge city, and they stay in that refuge city, they will never have to face the music for that accidental death. They have to stay there, but they won't be put to death. We actually have the same principle in Matthew 11 in the New Testament. It's with a city called Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is north of the Galilee, the the water, and Jesus preached there all the time. We know that Peter, James, and John grew up in Capernaum. I think I could make a case that eight of the initial 12 apostles came from Capernaum. They had light, unbelievable light. Listen to Matthew 11, 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Sodom, 
it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What is the sin of Sodom? Actually, if you go to the Psalter, the Psalms, it tells us that the number one sin of Sodom is unbelief. What is the sin of Capernaum? Unbelief. They have identical sin. But Capernaum is held at a higher level of culpability because it had more light. Those who do something without knowing it will receive a lighter beating. But to whom much is given, much more is expected. So we go back to our question. Is all sin the same in the eyes of God? When we're dealing with the temporal aspect, yes, one sin, any sin, name the sin. If we commit a sin, we are culpable before the Lord. And unless we are redeemed through Jesus Christ, we will be separated from God for eternity. And so he offers today to bring all of us into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Believe in Christ. Receive Christ. Ask him to be your Savior, your Lord. Are all sins equal in the eyes of God? When we're talking about temporal repercussions and the language of Scripture towards certain sins, no. God has harsher discipline for certain sins than for others. And more eternal pain in hell for certain sins than others and greater rewards for certain obedience for the believer in heaven. So it's a nuanced question. So when we see that little diagram on Facebook, don't write this theological treatise. Nobody will read it. Nobody cares. But know that it's a little more nuanced than just saying all sin is equal in the eyes of God. It's something that is often said, but it's not nuanced enough to what Scripture tells us. One last thing. Hebrews 10.24 says that what we ought to be doing, knowing that all sin is not equal, is spur one another on in love and good deeds. Are we our brother's keeper? We are. And we ought to help each other take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, maybe a little more theological than we sometimes talk, but yet not an unimportant question, an important one, because it gets to grace, and it gets to mercy, and it gets to obedience. And so, Father, we want to bask in your grace. And if there's somebody here that has never believed in Jesus as Savior, may today be the day that they, like we all need to admit, we're sinners. Our sin, temptation areas are different. When we act on our temptation, we are held culpable. And we need you, Jesus, as our Redeemer. So if somebody has not believed, may today be the day they say, yes, come into my heart, forgive me of my sin, become my Savior. And for we who know Jesus as Savior, empower us by your Spirit to see victory in our areas of sin, and to spur one another on in love and good deeds. 
for our betterment and your great glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.